28. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because they did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is full of power. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, reveal yourself. And so, Lord, do that today. Open our eyes to see the wonderful things about our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. This morning we have a very familiar story. If you uh, grew up in the church, you maybe can remember uh, Sunday school lessons and little flannel graphs or uh, pictures in your Sunday school book about the triumphal entry. Jesus riding on a colt. Of course, if you were in a Presbyterian church, you didn't actually see Jesus on the colt, but you saw the crowds, you saw uh, the, the affair, the event, um, because it's a story that we, well, that we know well, and it's a very important story. It's one of the stories that all four gospel writers specifically mention and address, uh, and the reason I believe they do so is because it's a story that reveals the truth and the glory about Jesus. And so if you are interested in knowing about Jesus, this will be a story that interests you. You'll want to, you'll want to uh, understand and see what the Spirit has for us. Uh, the tragedy of the story is that 
the vast majority of the people who were actually there didn't see Jesus. The title is, uh, that the uh, publishers of the Bible give is uh, the triumphal entry. That's not in the original Greek, of course. That's uh, just a, a summary that um, sort of has been given to this story. I think a better summary would be the tragic error. Because the, the, the tragedy of this story jumps out at you as you realize the throngs that are following Jesus do not understand who he is. The Jesus that they are celebrating is a Jesus of uh, their own interests, their own aspirations. They are very excited about the Jesus who's going to come and fill their political purposes specifically. The Jesus who's going to get rid of the Romans, the Jesus who's going to establish Israel and make Israel great again. The Jesus who's going to accomplish their national uh, interests and purposes and their national glory. They're all about that Jesus, but not the one who came to rescue sinners from the wrath of God, not the Jesus who actually came to make all things new. And so you have this, this incredible tension in the text. While the people are singing and dancing, Jesus is weeping. And when he entered the city, he did not take on the Romans, he took on the Jewish religious leaders. He didn't attack the palace, he attacked the temple. You see, he had not come to Jerusalem to claim a political throne. He came to Jerusalem to be nailed to a cross and in that act defeat death and lay claim to his sovereign eternal throne. As I said this morning, we see Jesus revealed to us as a, as a sovereign Lord and a loving Savior and an avenging judge, the real Jesus. And so let's just pick it up where Luke begins, verse 28 and 29. Uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and uh, as they're drawing near, he gives this strange command to two of his disciples. Go into the village in front of you, and when you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat, and untie it and bring it here. It's a, it's a strange command. It's, it sounds a little like a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Go take what doesn't belong to you and bring it to me. And Jesus, of course, probably sees the, the consternation in their eyes. This doesn't sound like a good idea. And so he says to them, uh, if anyone says to you, why are you untying it? Which they're thinking, yeah, that's, that's possible. That's highly likely. Who are you and what are you doing with, uh, why are you untying my colt? Uh, if the owner asks you, just tell them the Lord needs it. And Jesus must have said it with such conviction that uh, the two said, okay, and they head down the road. But yet they, I, I think they must have been looking at each other. Do you think this will work? We're just going to say the Lord needs it. Just try that sometime, right, in the neighborhood. But they go, and uh, of course, that's exactly how it happens. As they were untying the colt, verse 33, its owners said to them, why are, why are you untying the colt? Probably with a little bit of um, energy in their voice, some genuine concern in their voice, and maybe even a bit of a threat in their voice. And they said... Verse 34, 
The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. The owner of the colt consents. The Lord has need of it. Now, we need to recognize that Luke here is not just writing an interesting story. Luke is writing gospel. This is part of the good news. Luke wants you and me, the readers, to understand, to recognize who Jesus is. Who does this and who gets away with this? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. And we know that by title and by demonstration. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say to them, the Lord needs it. The Lord, not a Lord, not a ruler, not a very important person, but the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. You let this man know that the man who created that cult and has given that cult to you to steward for a short while, the owner of the cult, the Lord who created it, is actually uh, has need of it for a time. Jesus is simply claiming ownership. And that's, of course, exactly who Christ is and what is his right. It's his cult. It's a good reminder to us that uh, everything that we have actually does belong to King Jesus, and, and therefore Jesus has the right to repurpose what we thought was ours for his own glory, for his own ends. God has the right to repurpose your plans. He has the right to re, uh, repurpose your, your health and your wealth, your circumstances, your possessions, to serve his own interests. God is not robbing you when he takes things that belong to him and uses it to some other end. That's a big pill for us to swallow, um, but it's exactly the truth. It, it's just true. It's God's. It's not mine. It's not yours, ultimately. It's his, and when, when he says the Lord has need of it, it's our calling then to respond and say, Lord, here it is. It's, it's yours. We see that Jesus Christ is revealed as the Son of God in human flesh by his title, the Lord, and by demonstration. Because Mark, Mark and Luke both point out that this young colt has never been ridden. Now, if you uh, have any familiarity with animals or maybe you've just watched too many Westerns, you realize that uh, unridden colts, um, well, that's a test. That's a challenge because they don't like being ridden. Uh, and so they need to be broken in and you need an expert rider uh, to do that. Well, uh, this young colt is, um, recognizes who Jesus is. Like, like when Jesus calms the water of the sea, he clearly calms this young colt. It immediately submits to its maker's will. And Jesus rides this, this unbroken animal, this untamed animal, into, uh, into the city. It's a wonderful demonstration of his sovereign lordship. But Luke also wants to see that he's a messianic king. Matthew picks this up more pointedly. Uh, Matthew writing particularly to a Jewish audience, uh, often, if you remember the book of Matthew, will say this was to fulfill what the prophets said. And, and Matthew interjects into the story exactly that phrase, this is to fulfill what the prophets had said, and he quotes from Zechariah 9. 
Zechariah was prophesying uh, to the Israelites after they had returned from Babylonian captivity. They were not good times. The temple was destroyed. Uh, they had the, the borders of their city were broken down. They didn't have a king. Uh, it, there was just brokenness all over the place. But Zechariah comes with, with good news in, in chapter 9, 9, where he, he prophesies, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's fascinating, 500 years before Jesus Christ is born, Zechariah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us exactly how he's going to come into the city. Your king is coming to you, and he's going to be a mighty king. He's going to be a conquering king. His rule will be from sea to sea, and he's a saving king. He's righteous, having salvation, and that's the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ is that mighty king, and he's come to save, and so the people are not wrong to sing. Jesus accepts their praises. He accepts the title. The Pharisees are shocked. Jesus, rebuke your disciples. They are claiming messianic titles for you. Make them stop. And Jesus wonderfully says, if, if I make them stop, the rocks are going to start singing. Somebody has to sing. The glory of Jesus Christ requires it. The truth has to be told. He is exactly the messianic king. But he appears in this wonderfully conspicuous manner, humble and riding on a donkey. So there's this fascinating contrast that, would have, uh, that everyone of the day would have recognized. That they've seen kings ride into town, and they've never seen one on a donkey. Kings ride on stallions, war horses, or in ornate chariots. Maybe they're carried in a, a beautiful cabin of, of some sort on the, the, shoulders of, of their so, uh, the shoulders of their men. They don't come on donkeys because, you see, donkeys are for the little people. Donkeys are what the poor uh, or servants ride, just the common people ride on. Well, Jesus doesn't come, you see, as the kings of this earth. And, and he, he doesn't claim his throne with grandeur and splendor and displays of majesty. He, he claims his throne by humility. Jesus, you see, did not, did, did not rescue this creation and those made in God's image from death and hell by the power of his deity, but by the humility of his obedience. It was necessary he be God, but it was essential that he obeyed. So Philippians 2, Paul speaks of this, that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think in heaven, and probably only in heaven, we will get a sense, we'll understand how magnificent obedience is. How perfectly right obedience is. 
that God being God in his glory, his splendor, his righteousness, his holiness and justice and truth, that God being God is owed perfect obedience and that it is a good and beautiful and right thing and that everything that falls short of obedience is awful because it offends him. And so here we have Jesus becomes obedient to the point of death. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Father, if it be possible, sweating drops of blood, yet not my will, the essence of obedience, but your will be done. I think we often forget the beauty, the sheer magnificence and the saving power of the obedience of Jesus Christ. Many of you know that J. Gresham Major, one of the founding fathers of the OPC, lays uh, dying in January 1, 1937 in, a, uh, in, in North Dakota, and he sends a telegram to his good friend and colleague, John Murray, that says this, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. The act of obedience of Christ. You see, friends, what we need is not just the love of Christ. We need the love of Christ that would, that would make him willing to come and take on our form and obey. And then go to the cross with that obedience and offer that obedience to our account. You see, because when your sins rise up against you, when, when the devil accuses you and your own conscience torments you, what, what, will you, what will you oppose the truth of what the devil says and the truth of what your conscience says? That you've sinned, you've, you've offended a holy God. And the law requires that that sin be answered with penalty, with judgment, with death. What will you say? I hope you don't just say that Jesus loves me. I hope you say that Jesus loved me and he obeyed for me. And against the mountain of my sin, there are the immense alpine mountain range of the obedience of God. The obedience of Jesus Christ. And that has been given to me. And that stands over against all the awful sins that I've committed. There stands the glorious, beautiful obedience of Jesus Christ. Nothing can, can, can mar that. That's my salvation. Christ is my righteousness. Devil, go talk to him. See, that's, 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 that's healing for a tortured conscience. So this is the Jesus we need. We need the humble Jesus. We need the obedient Jesus on the back of a colt, on the back of a donkey. But he is not just an obedient, loving Lord. He is an obedient Lord. He is a loving Savior. And we see that in the next verses. As verse 37 and following, the, the crowds are singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. There's a very, very large crowd. Jesus has uh, just uh, performed a miracle at Bethany. And, and, and so there's probably... A, conflation of these two large groups of people. It's a massive crowd. The Pharisees and leaders don't know what to do about it. 
But, but they're singing, they're dancing. They're, we know from other gospels, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. This is, this is Psalm 118, a Hallel song, a, a song that they would sing on their way to Passover. They, ha, they see Jesus and the Passover doing this. You see, the Passover is sort of 4th of July for Israel. It's the day they remember God's uh, delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt and making them his people, his nation. And so it just seems perfectly right that Jesus now is going to be the, the messianic king who's going to be like, like Moses, once again, make them a great nation state. Moses took care of Pharaoh, Jesus is going to take care of Rome, the two great powers of the world of their day. It makes perfect sense. And Hosanna means save now. Do it now. They're very excited. And it's true. Jesus has come as a messianic king. But not to that end, you see. And so Jesus' response in, 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 against the backdrop of all this rejoicing, this dancing, this singing, Jesus is weeping. Luke 19, 41, when he drew near this and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they, now they are hidden from your eyes. Just, you see, if you miss this, you miss Jesus. He's weeping for these people who are more than willing, you see, to celebrate him as their political leader, but will not acknowledge him as their sovereign savior. They will not bow before him with faith like blind Bartimaeus or repentance like Zacchaeus. Those are the things that make for peace. That's the way to be reconciled to a holy God. But see, they don't think they need to be reconciled. They're God's people. They're children of Abraham. They keep the law. Why would they need to be reconciled? What they're interested in is this other thing, this, this leader, this political leader. So they refused to see who Jesus was because they refused to see who they were. And so now these things, Jesus says, horrifyingly, now they are hidden from your eyes. That God in his judgment has Closed the eyelids, right, of, of, of the heart. They can't see now. I mean, did you just see the tragedy of this? Because they refused to see who he was, now they cannot see who he is. And they're right there. Jesus is in their midst. Riken says, is anything sadder in all the world than someone who comes close to touching Jesus but never grabs hold of him by faith and repentance? It's, it's just the most tragic thing. Do you realize that people are born and raised in the church and, and Christ himself is presented to them by the word and spirit and they're so close and they can tell you lots of things about him but they never come to him in faith and repentance. And, and friends, we just have to recognize that that's a dangerous place to be. You see, because God would be perfectly right to say, if you refuse to see, I'm just closing the eyes. And you can go on dancing, and you can go on singing, and you can celebrate the Jesus that you think is, has come to help you in, in some particular way, but you won't see him. 
You see, these people are under judgment as they're dancing and singing. They're under judgment already. And that judgment is going to be fulfilled. God has said a day, Jesus points it out in verse 43 and following, when the city of Jerusalem is going to be ripped apart. And we know that happened about 40 years later. Because you see, every word of God proves true. That's Proverbs 30, verse 5. And Jesus is weeping about this. He's weeping because Jerusalem is lost. It's blind and it's condemned. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But friends, I, I just want you to see the, such a marvelous insight into the, into the heart of Christ, the compassion of our Lord. In a few days, Jesus is going to go to a cross. He's going to experience the wrath of God. But Jesus, he'll say it in Luke 23, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. He's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for these people, these, these people who don't get it, who don't want to get it. He's, he's weeping for those who refuse to come under the shadow of his saving wings. Friend, I just, if you're here this morning and, and you are unconverted or just lost in your sin, I just want you to know there's no reason for you to go to hell. There's no reason. Not with this Jesus. There's no reason. There's love enough here. There's grace and compassion enough for every sinner. Let the tears of Christ over this city convince you there's love enough in his heart for you. Be convinced of it. And maybe you've been in church all your life, but you've never had the assurance of forgiveness. Let the tears of Christ, friend, assure you. He loves to save you. He's willing to save you if you come to him in faith and repentance. But every word of God proves true. And if you will not come in faith and repentance, if you will trust in your righteousness or your good intentions, whatever, or if you just want to live your life, then you will not be saved. And you will find then Jesus to be an avenging judge. And that's what happens here. In verse 45, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. You notice Jesus lays claim this is God's house, my house. And it's a, it, it's a place that was uniquely devoted to God's purposes. God gets to decide what this house is for. And God says it's, a, it's for prayer. This is for communion between God and his people. And God has made a way for that to happen in the temple. So there are sacrifices and ceremonies so that when people come and submit themselves to, to the door that God has opened for them, uh, there will be real communion. God the holy God and sinful men can come, and that's to the glory of God, the God who, who delights in mercy. And so you see, when people enter into that holy place, a place devoted to God, devoted to God's saving purposes, when, when people come and interfere with that open door that God has made for sinners to commune with God, God is offended. He's offended. They don't get to do this. It's not their house. Because you see, they've taken this and they've made it a religion and they've made it a way for them to exercise their influence and to gain money for themselves. It's a den of robbers. <clears throat> so Jesus Christ responds with anger. With anger. 
it's just struck me as I was studying this this week that I think, I think this is happening all over the place in America, the churches of America. People are taking it on themselves to repurpose the church, repurpose the gospel to serve other ends. The church is God's church. It's Christ's church. It's, it's the place of prayer. It's a, the church is, and the gospel, you see, is, it's, it's about what God has accomplished for sinners in Jesus Christ. Jesus being the new and living temple. And we don't get to repurpose him. And we don't get to repurpose the gospel. The glory of God is at stake. The salvation of sinners, the purposes of God are at stake. But I think that's exactly what's happening. When uh, on vacation last week or so, um, we were listening to a sermon, Joanne and I, just driving down the road, some large church in the area there down in Florida, and uh, it was part of a sermon series called Choices, and this sermon uh, that Sunday was Choosing Purpose Over Popularity. And this, the, uh, the speaker um, talked about how we make thousands and thousands of choices as, as, in our lifetime and that uh, our life is the sum total of our choices, which, which I wanted to say, uh, no, thank God my life is not the sum total of my choices. Don't take the gospel from me that God made a choice for me before the foundation of the world and that my life will, will in one right will certainly accrue to that sovereign choice that defines me not my choices so i wasn't in a good mood when he continued on <laughs> that studies have shown that if you live for purpose rather than popularity you're going to be more productive and a happier person and then he goes on to talk about Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a purpose. And Jesus, Jesus lived for a purpose. And you should too. That is repurposing Jesus and the gospel to the end of human flourishing, not to the end of the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And those who practice this will find the same Jesus as the religious leaders. This is not little stuff, people. We don't get to take Jesus and repurpose him to our own ends. We don't get to take the gospel of the glory of God and all that he accomplished to rescue sinners from the wrath of God and, we get, and make it into something other. And there's a thousand ways to do it. Liberal churches have often done this by making the gospel about social justice. Fundamentalist churches can often repurpose the gospel and make it about being moral and keeping rules. The evangelical church repurposes the gospel and make it about relational health and emotional healing and how to have financial wisdom and train your children. All human flourishing issues. There are uh, uh, black churches that make racial reconciliation the purpose of the gospel. There are reformed Dutch or, or just right white um, reformed churches in West Michigan who make the gospel about, we repurpose it, about living a nice um, uh, easy, comfortable, secure West Michigan lifestyle. That ultimately the gospel is about helping us be nice people and have the life that we hope we can live here, here in West Michigan. That's not what it's for. 
It's to rescue you from the wrath that you deserve. You see, and if you never come to understand that you're good, you'll, you'll just sit in church Sunday after Sunday, bored out of your mind, because you don't see Jesus. How is it possible that this Christ, you see, we profess to believe in this Christ, and yet we complain, we are worldly, and we're very interested in the Jesus that will help us have the life that we want now, the life of human flourishing as we understand it, but the Jesus who actually takes over. The Jesus who rescued us from the wrath of God is a Jesus that we can easily miss. And friends, we just can't miss it, not, not without to the, endangering our soul. And so Jesus comes and he begins to drive this. He, he will not have this. He is passionate for the glory of God. So Christ, on the one hand, we see his passion for the salvation of sinners. And here we see his passion for the glory of God. I will not give my glory to another. And he means it. See, Jesus Christ came for the glory of God. And he came to even give his life. So when he's about to go to the cross, John 17, Father, glorify your name. That's why he's here. That's why he came And God glorifies his name in saving sinners, saving all those who call upon the name of the Lord. He glorifies his name by rescuing you and rescuing me from the wrath that is to come and making us brand new people. How do these passions, how do we need to apply this? Let me me just close with this. For, For unconverted religious people, Let me just say this. One of the startling things about this text is that we realize that uh, the worshipers of Jesus were just as lost and blind and unconverted as the enemies were. The people who were there uh, singing the songs were just as lost and just as blind, just as unconverted as the Pharisees who were complaining about the songs. They both didn't get it. They didn't see Jesus. And so you can be in church all your life long, and you can sing the songs, and you can participate, and you'd be just as lost as any Pharisee you might be pointing your finger at. The critical issue, friends, the critical issue is what have you done with him? Do you understand why he came and who he is and that, that he has come? This is your day of visitation. That Christ is, this is a day of grace. Don't miss the day of your visitation. This is the day for you to respond in faith and repentance. This is for you to come and submit before the beautiful, loving lordship of Jesus Christ. This is a day for you to to turn away from every worthless idol. This evening we're going to look at Psalm 31. And be just briefly touching on those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. There's so many people in the church who forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. Beautiful grace. Sufficient grace. Saving, transforming grace. Don't let that be you today. This is a loving Savior. I hope you see Jesus as a loving Savior. I, I hope you, you, you sense the, the beauty of his love for you, his concern for your salvation. And, and I hope that, that as Jesus reveals himself to you, 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 you know that he's the sovereign Lord And that your heart's desire is to worship him, your heart's desire is to serve him, your heart's desire is to obey him, and more than anything else, your heart's desire is to see him. To see him. He's a good Savior. He's a loving Lord. 
And he's an avenging judge. He said a day. He's coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready? You can know today you are as you come to this Jesus on your knees. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his beauty. I thank you for his love. I thank you that he is the Lord. What an astounding thought. Jesus Christ, that you would come for me, that you would come for us, that you would take our filth, our, our lies, our lust, our perversions, our anger, our, our grumbling, hateful spirits, that you would take all of that upon yourself, Christ, and, and you would go to that cross to suffer the full penalty not a symbolic punishment, but the full wrath of God, the justice of the law poured out upon you, oh Jesus. Forgive us for how, how easily we sin. But Lord Jesus, forgive us too for, for not believing how how free and gracious and willing you are to forgive sin. Forgive us for thinking you are you're small and begrudging in your abundant grace. Lord, we just we need your Holy Spirit to remind us of the great abundant goodness that you have stored up for those who turn to you. I pray, Lord, that your, your the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus would descend upon every hurting or convicted, shame-filled heart this morning. We are the blind Bartimaeuses. We're the thieving Zacchaeuses. And we need Jesus. So Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to love him, to believe in him, to delight in him to happily submit to him. Whatever else you do with our life, Father God, don't let us miss Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.